Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening. We thank you for this time of fellowship, for this present freedom to gather together to study your word. Father, we uh, take a moment to uplift Judy to you, Father, uh, for her current health issue. Uh, we come before your throne of grace, and Lord, you know the situation, you know her, and you know exactly what's going on, and we pray for your healing hand upon her, whether that be directly or through the agency of medical professionals. Father, we just want her to receive optimal treatment, and we just pray for her, Father, that you will give her special grace in this situation. And, Father, we pray for tonight's fellowship, our time of study in the Word. We pray that this will be a time of fruitful understanding. We pray that we will be challenged by the things that we study. Uh, Father, we pray that tonight's fellowship will be honoring to you and edifying to us. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, whenever we uh, gather together for uh, Bible study, and I have that moment of silence, the moment of silence is intended to uh, give us the opportunity uh, to confess our sins privately to the Lord, and uh, whereby we can uh, confess our sins and be forgiven and restored to fellowship. So the execution of 1 John 1, 9 is always very important, and that's part of what the silence does. It gives us that opportunity to confess our sins. Uh, it also gives us the opportunity to be able to switch in our thinking because uh, the Word of God demands attention, and, and we really have to be able to think. And so moving away from a casual conversation to more of an academic mindset is, uh, is very important. So the moment of silence also affords us that opportunity as well. All right, so we are picking up in our study in soteriology, and, and uh, uh, over the last few weeks we've talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. We went through and looked at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And uh, we looked at the attributes of God, and uh, last time we met, we talked about how God, we, talk, we looked at the role of God the Father in our salvation, how the Father from eternity past planned uh, our salvation. He commissioned the Son uh, to come into the world to be our Savior, and the Son responded. Uh, he responded, and, and he, he came into the world, and uh, he took upon uh, himself humanity, and he accomplished uh, what we cannot. And, uh, of course, the Holy Spirit is uh, the one that we will be looking at here in the weeks ahead. But having talked about God the Father uh, last time, uh, today we're going to begin a series of lessons. We're going to be looking at the role of God the Son in soteriology. By the way, you'll notice uh, as we go through these studies that there's lots of repetition. And uh, years ago, I used to be, uh, I used to, uh, you know, bring that up and uh, mention that, and anymore, I just realized that that's just a point of learning, that that's just how we, uh, how we learn, uh, not just as human beings, but as Christians. It's through that repetition. So uh, in tonight's lesson, you'll hear things uh, repeated from past lessons and repeated uh, here in the next weeks ahead. Uh, and this, again, is all just intended to uh, seat these truths deeply into our thinking so let's go ahead and jump into the notes here. Now, at a point in time, the eternal Son of God added humanity to himself, simultaneously becoming God and man, creator and creature, the unique theanthropic person. And the word theanthropic, uh, when you see the I-C on the end of a word, uh, that ending, that suffix, it means to make, to make. Uh, is generally how that suffix is understood. So the word, the first part of this is the T-H-E, 
So we see like T-H-E for like the word theos, for God. And then you have here anthropic, or from the Greek word anthropos, meaning man. So when we talk, when, when we use the word theanthropic, uh, we're talking about the God-man. And that's just a technical word that is used in theology uh, that is applied to Jesus Christ. Now passages, and we'll have some repetition here, but that's all right. In John 1, 1, it reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was God. So clearly, you have a distinction here between uh, uh, God the Son and God the Father. You have, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh. And so this speaks of the hypostatic union. It speaks of the incarnation at a point in time where God the Son added humanity to himself. Uh, and this happened uh, at, uh, at the time of the incarnation. And so it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Notice he's from the Father, uh, full of grace and truth. Uh, but we're going to see some language here that now that we've looked at God the Father as the one who sent him, we'll see this language occur in a number of other passages. We also think of in John 1.18, it says, And no one has seen God at any time. Now this, when it says this, it's talking about God in spirit. Because remember in John 4.24, in John 4.24, it says God is spirit. Now spirit is not visible to the human eye. And remember that when, uh, when uh, Jesus was resurrected, when he appeared to Thomas in bodily form, because remember he appeared to the disciples without Thomas, and the disciples told Thomas about it, and what, what was Thomas's uh, response? He said, well, unless I see him and touch him, right? And, uh, and Jesus was very gracious, and he did appear. He appeared to Thomas with the other uh, disciples, and, uh, and he told Thomas, he said, come here, touch my hands, touch my side, for, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone. And so, you know, when we talk about, when it says no one has seen God at any time, that's with regard to his essential nature as spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, we have these appearances uh, where God appears in human form. It's called a theophany, a theophany. And what that means is that God temporarily takes on human form, uh, and this in order to interact with people. And this is what happened in Genesis 18. It happened in Judges. It happened uh, in a number of examples. It happened with Joshua. And so you have these appearances of God uh, briefly uh, according to his will, where, again, he took on human form. But here, when we talk about Jesus Christ, when we talk about God the Son adding humanity to himself, that is permanent, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit when we get into the hypostatic union, because we're going to touch into that doctrine uh, this evening, I believe. And so, but here it says in John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time, but notice the only begotten God. Now, the word begotten here translates the Greek word monogenes, monogenes. Now, uh, the word begotten is probably not the best translation, uh, the word here, monogenes, what it means from, from, the, from, from the Greek, what it means is the uniquely born one, the one who is uniquely born, because Christ is unique, and there is no one like him in the history of humanity. And so he is monogenes theos. He's the uniquely born God. 
And notice here, again, it says, no one has seen God, the, uh, the uniquely born, or monogenes theos, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. But it's just simply pointing out the deity of Christ. In John eight fifty eight, 58, uh, Jesus uh, responded to the Pharisees and said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, the phrase I am translates the Greek, ego ami. Ego ami, and it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Yahweh, and we're going to see that here in a little bit as well. But what he's doing here is he's claiming to be Yahweh. He's claiming to be God of the Old Testament. And the Pharisees understood this, by the way, as well. Notice John 10, 33, and, uh, <clears throat> where Jesus makes the comment in verse 32. Well, it says in verse 31, the Jews... Uh, picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They clearly understood his claim to deity. There's no question about it. They understood with clarity uh, that he was making himself out to be God. And that is the claim of Scripture. In fact, over in John 20, 28, when Thomas saw the risen Lord, he answered and said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And clearly, Thomas here recognizes Jesus as God. Colossians 2, 9 tells us, for in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And of course, uh, <laughs> perhaps one of the clearest passages is in Hebrews 1, 8, uh, which to me is just, it's just, it, along with the others, it's just, it's just overwhelming information. But it says here in Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, now notice he's talking about the Son, but of the Son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so again, clearly recognizing <clears throat> Jesus Christ as the unique theanthropic person. Now Jesus is the God-man and exists in hypostatic union. And he exists as a single person with a divine and human nature. A divine and human nature. Because remember, he is God. He, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so here you have that tying together that John makes very clear, that God, <laughs> the Word, became flesh. Uh, and both natures, by the way, are distinct and preserved not mixed or confused, fully God and fully man. He's not 50-50, 70-30, 90-10. He's 100% God and, at the same time, 100% man. He is both. He is fully God and fully man. And the hypostatic union is forever from conception onward. It is forever. When, when God the Son added humanity to himself, when that union occurred, it is forever. And when he was resurrected, he was resurrected bodily. And he told Thomas, touch me. Uh, when he ascended in Acts 1.9, when he ascended into heaven, he ascended bodily. And the apostles who stood there watched him uh, ascend up into the clouds bodily. And the angels told him, they said, hey, you know, what are you looking at? Uh, and, th and then they, the angels made it very clear that he will return uh, just as he went. Well, he went bodily. And so he will return bodily. Uh, so when we think about it, when we think about the hypostatic union, we must realize that it is uh, forever. 
that once he added humanity to himself, that union is forever. So God the Son uh, will forever be in hypostatic union. And so even right now, he is in heaven bodily, and when he returns, he will return bodily. And when he uh, reigns on the earth uh, in Jerusalem uh, during the millennial uh, kingdom, during the time of the millennial reign of Christ, it will be bodily. So we should understand this. Now, Jesus was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And remember back in Isaiah 7.14, we had a prophecy about this 750 years before uh, the time of the Incarnation. And the Lord uh, said, he said, the Lord, uh, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. And there's always some debate around issues. There's always some point of controversy in the Bible with some theologians. And the word for virgin here translates the Hebrew noun uh, Alma, which in some uh, contexts can simply refer to a young girl. And of course, there was some debate among Hebrew scholars, is this a virgin? Is this a young girl? You know, what's, what's, what's being communicated here? Well, um, while, while Alma can be a young girl, or it could be a virgin, that is true in the Hebrew, the Greek uh, closes the door on the question. Because that prophecy uh, of Isaiah 7.14 is picked up by Matthew uh, in his gospel. And in Matthew 1.23, Matthew cites the Isaiah 7.14 passage. And he says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. But the word for virgin here translates the Greek word parthenos. Parthenos. And parthenos means only a virgin. <laughs> and so whatever question may have existed around the Hebrew noun Alma, uh, the Greek word without question uh, means a virgin. And so the Greek here is very clear on this, very clear on this. And by the way, the same thing is over in Luke um, when it talks about uh, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Uh, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin. And there's our Greek noun, Parthenos, Parthenos. And so we see the word used here uh, again very clearly. And so uh, it's, it's very straightforward. And, uh, and from this, we get the use of the technical word uh, parthenogenesis. And so you see that here. You see that here in this word here. It's a technical word. It's used to refer to Jesus Christ in hypostatic union and, and the time of the virgin conception. And here you have the first part of this here is parthenos, parthenos. You see the word for virgin and genesis. And so it's a term that refers to uh, supernaturally a virgin conceived, we might say. Now, Mary uh, is the mother of Jesus' humanity. Now, the technical word for that is called Christotokos. Uh, and takos there is a word for bearer, the bearer of. And then you have Christos. Christos from the Greek is the Hebrew, is the equivalent of the Hebrew Mashiach uh, for Messiah. And so it's just the Greek equivalent is what that is. And so uh, Mother Mary here, she is the mother of Jesus' humanity, and that's called Christotokos. She is the bearer of Christ. Now some, 
some out there see Mary as the mother of God. And, um, and, and they employ the phrase theotokos, theotokos, and so they, they, which means the bearer of God. Now, I did a video a while back on, is Mary the mother of God? And I answered that, and I said no. And uh, boy, the amount of hate mail I got on TikTok, on, uh, not TikTok, I'm not on TikTok, on Instagram, uh, just exploded. And uh, it went on for weeks. It just, it was amazing, uh, the amount of hostile responses I got from people. And so, again, some see Mary as the mother of God. And though Jesus is God, that's true, uh, we must realize that his divine nature is without origin. Remember, he is eternal. He is eternal. And so his divine nature is without origin and eternal. Now, listen, we want to give, we want to recognize uh, that Mary uh, was chosen by God, and this by his sovereign will, and this by grace. And so being the mother of Jesus' humanity really honors Mary, uh, and we really want to recognize that. Uh, that being the mother of Jesus' humanity uh, is a great honor to Mary, but at the same time, without elevating her to a place beyond what the Scriptures teach. So we just want to be very clear on that. Now, <clears throat> now Jesus was born a Jew. He was born a son of Abraham in the line of David. And you see that over here in Matthew 1, where we have the record of the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus, uh, the Messiah. And the Messiah here translates that Greek word Christos from the Greek. And then Matthew tells us that he is Dawid, uh, Abraham, that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so very clear, uh, we want to be very clear here that Jesus was a Jew, uh, that he was born a son of Abraham, a biological descendant, and in the line of David. Now, that's very important uh, when Matthew is giving the genealogy here because it shows that Jesus has the right credentials uh, to be the Messiah, to be the Messiah, and to be the one who was going to sit upon the throne of David and rule uh, over Jerusalem. So he is uh, born a son of Abraham in the line of David, and he is the promised Messiah. In fact, that's what Matthew drives at here in Matthew 1.17. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the what? To the Messiah. And so, very straightforward, Matthew is making a case here, and he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, uh, Matthew wrote primarily to Jews. Uh, Mark wrote primarily to Gentiles. He wrote to, uh, uh, to Romans, uh, to Roman Gentiles. And uh, Luke, well, he wrote to a man named Theophilus, and you can read about that in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And John, well, he just wrote to everybody. <laughs> uh, and so I like John. But Matthew has a very distinctly Jewish audience, and so he's going to be answering questions, because if he's making the case that Jesus is the promised Messiah... Uh, anybody who is Jewish is going to ask the question, well, does he have the right credentials, uh, you know, to, to fit this role? And, of course, he does, and that's what Matthew is partly arguing here. Now, in his humanity, and we're going to draw some distinctions here, because there are times where Jesus, when he's in hypostatic union, you must realize that there were times that he spoke out of his divine nature. When he said, before Abraham was, ago a me, I am. Uh, when he forgave sins, the Jews realized, hey, 
Uh, only God can forgive sins. Who is this man who claims to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And so uh, what's the answer to that? Well, go figure, right? If he can forgive sins and only God can forgive sins, well, then that makes him God. Uh, so there were times that he spoke out of his divine nature. But then there were times he spoke out of his human nature when he got hungry, when he got thirsty, when he got tired. That's, 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 the, that's the human uh, nature uh, communicating there. Now, Jesus is always one person. He's not two persons. He's one person, but he has two natures, a nature that is fully divine and a nature that is fully human. Uh, and so Jesus grew in wisdom. Look at Luke 2.40. It says the child. Now, this is a reference to his humanity, not his deity. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. Now, what that means is Jesus had to go to school. He had to learn. Uh, he had to learn from life experience. No doubt he helped his father uh, with, with work, uh, but he increased in wisdom. You see the same thing down in verse 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom. And this means that in his humanity, uh, he had to learn and grow. Um, and not only that, but he lived a perfectly righteous life before God and man. Of course, passages of Scripture like 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, 1 Peter 3.22, 1 John 3.5, all make it very clear that Jesus knew no sin, was without sin, committed no sin, and in him there is no sin. And so the record of Scripture is very clear. So in his humanity, Jesus walked in perfect conformity to God the Father's holy character and divine revelation. Now, cults such as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses deny the full humanity and deity of Jesus, and for this reason are not within the true Christian community. Now, Henry Thiessen, who uh, wrote a systematic theology, uh, I have this quote here from him. He says, the Council of Chalcedon, uh, which was a church council, by the way, it was one of several uh, that occurred several centuries after the church began, but he says the Council of Chalcedon in A.D. 451 established what has been the position of the Christian church. There is one Jesus Christ, but he has two natures, the human and the divine. He is truly God and truly man, composed of body and rational soul. He is consubstantial with the Father in his deity and consubstantial with man in his humanity except for sin. In his deity, he was begotten or uniquely uh, uh, born of the Father before time. So he, is, he was begotten of the Father before time. And in his humanity, born of the Virgin Mary. The distinction between the natures is not diminished by their union. But the specific character of each nature is preserved and they are united in one person. Jesus is not split or divided into two persons. He is one person, the Son of God. Uh, now let's move into his deity here, and we'll look at uh, some more passages that relate to his uh, deity. Now the Bible presents Jesus as God. Now the, in the Old Testament, the proper name of God is Yahweh. Now what's interesting is whenever you look at Hebrew, when you're learning Hebrew, Hebrew is a challenge. And I wound up with four years of Greek and four years of Hebrew when I was in my master's and doctorate. And uh, I did a little bit better with the Greek than I did with the Hebrew, and I think that's true for a lot of students. Hebrew um, reads from right to left, but Hebrew has 22 consonants. It doesn't have any vowels. 
Uh, and this makes pronunciation uh, difficult sometimes. Now, we have what is called the Masoretic Text, the Masoretic Text, which is the Hebrew text that most of us use. When you're in seminary, you have to buy a Hebrew Bible, and you have to have this for reading and translation purposes, but you generally you get the Masoretic Text. Well, the Masoretes were Jewish scholars uh, who, from about the 5th to the 9th century A.D., uh, put in these little dots and dashes, uh, which were tremendously helpful, because it helps us to understand uh, how, where to place the vowels and how to pronounce the, these names. But when you're looking at the proper name of God, it consists of these four letters, the Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, and it reads from right to left. And so we read it this way, we say Yahweh, but it, from the Hebrew it reads from right to left, the Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. And, um, and that's called the tetragrammaton. Tetra, meaning four, gramma, letters. The tetragrammaton uh, is one of those technical terms that refers to the four letters that make up the proper name of God. It's his covenant name. And uh, it's the name that God used when talking with Moses, for example, at the burning bush. And Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And uh, the answer comes back, Yahweh, uh, which is I am. And, uh, and so this is, uh, speaks of his eternality, his, his eternal existence. And by the way, when we're looking at the Bible, it is generally translated Lord using all capital letters. Uh, at least that's the way my NASB does that. Now, when the Septuagint, and the, the word Septuagint comes from a Greek word, it means 70, uh, and it refers to 70 Hebrew scholars uh, who around 250 B.C., translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, because by that time, most Jews, uh, having gone through captivity and been uh, scattered throughout the world, didn't speak Hebrew anymore, uh, Aramaic and Greek, but they were more Greek-speaking than Hebrew-speaking. So these scholars got together and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and that is what we call the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. In fact, and I could be off here, but if memory serves me correct, roughly 90% of the quotes in the New Testament, when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they're quoting from the Greek Septuagint. Uh, now, some do uh, uh, a straightforward translation of their own, but, uh, but by and large, they reference the Septuagint, which again was written around 250 B.C. Now, what's interesting is when, when one looks at the Greek Septuagint, the translators... Uh, who translated the proper name of God here, uh, we'll, we'll say Yahweh, uh, the Germans come along and they say Jehovah, uh, but there's no J in Hebrew. It's a Yod, it's Yah. And, uh, and so they say Jehovah, but that's, but that's a Germanic pronunciation. Uh, Yahweh is, is more correct here. Uh, but when the translators chose the Greek word uh, for, for Yahweh, they chose the word kurios, Kurios, they chose that as a suitable substitute for the Hebrew name Yahweh. Now, when looking at the New Testament, uh, the word kurios, and remember that context always determines the meaning of a word. The context always determines the meaning of a word. And in some passages, uh, the word kurios is used to mean sir. Sir, for example, in Acts 16.30. When the Philippian jailer uh, asked Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, well, that's kurios, 
What must I do to be saved? So there the term kurios is used uh, to mean sir. It's a, it's a term of respect. And in other places, it is used to mean master. Like here, slaves in all things obey those who are your kurios. Uh, here, tran- translating the Greek word kurios as master. So context determines the meaning. But the word is also used to refer to the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, how do I know this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at the, let's look at the text, because it always goes back to what does the Bible say. Now, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, uh, we have a prophetic statement here uh, that points forward roughly 750 years to a man known as Ioannes Baptistes, John the Baptist. And it says here, a voice is calling, clear the way for who? The Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, clear the way for the Lord. Now, notice that that's all in capital letters there. Uh, Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And uh, that translates the Hebrew Yahweh. Okay, so very straightforward here. Clear the way for Yahweh. Well, uh, when you get over here to John chapter 1, verse 23, uh, when the question was put to John the Baptist, who are you, is the question put to John the Baptist. And, uh, and his answer came back. He said, I am. Now, here he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He says, I am a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. But Lord here translates the Greek word kurios. Kurios. Now, who is John the Baptist clearing the way for? Jesus. Here, this passage points to Jesus. So when you're looking at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and it uses the proper name of God, Yahweh, uh, and you look at this and you compare this with John 1, 23, very clearly it is a reference uh, using the Greek word kurios as a substitute for Yahweh, and it, it just argues the point that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is God. He is the God of the Old Testament. In fact, if you look at another passage, look at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Well, there's Lord again, all in caps. So this is the proper name of God. This is Yahweh again. Uh, You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Well, uh, when Satan was tempting Jesus, remember, back in Matthew chapter 4, and, uh, and the temptation was, uh, and, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you on their hands. They will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And Lord there is kurios. Uh, and so we see here again where Yahweh Uh, is translated using the Greek word kurios. And so you see these examples here uh, where this occurs. Um, uh, And just like when uh, Thomas said of Jesus, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Well, there's kurios and theos there. 
also in Philippians 2, uh, 2.11. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Kurios, uh, to the glory of God the Father. So a reference to his deity. So again, we're just looking at language here and how it's applied. Now, according to Thiessen, quoting Thiessen again here, he says, although the second person of the Trinity often appears in the Old Testament, uh, he is never referred to as Christ. Instead, we have the names Son, and notice here he's talking about uh, applied to Christ, Jehovah, the angel of Jehovah, and in Psalm 2-7, Jehovah calls him his son. More frequently, he is called Jehovah. So it's just that recognition that the, um, that the way that the Old Testament, that, that, that the New Testament writers would have understood Jesus when they call him Kurios, it would have been with the understanding that he is, in fact, Yahweh. Uh, again, so the New Testament writers clearly saw Yahweh, God from the Old Testament, is referring to Jesus. Now, concerning the New Testament evidence, uh, the Apostle John wrote, and of course we've already hit on this, but that's all right, we'll hit it again. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, that is God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word, which became flesh, according to John 17, 5, uh, existed with the Father before the world was. Before the world was. It's very fascinating, by the way, when you read over in John 17 and you read about this prayer that Jesus has to the Father, and he says... In verse 5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Notice, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, that is Jesus talking out of his divine nature. You see that? So, again, when you, when you see certain passages and you see Jesus speaking, there's times where, again, he spoke from his humanity and times where he spoke from his deity. And clearly, this is a reference to his divine nature, uh, because he's talking to the Father, and he says, Glorify me together with yourself, notice again, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That is, before anything existed, God the Son existed there uh, as the second member of the Godhead. <clears throat> uh, going on in the notes here, Now the Jews of Jesus' day understood his claims to deity, and according to John 5.18, that he was calling God his own father, notice, making himself equal with God. And so they understood that. On another occasion, they said to Jesus, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Again, very straightforward. And of course, the apostle Thomas, after seeing the resurrected Jesus, said to him, my Lord and my God. So very clear statements. Of course, Colossians 2.9, uh, Paul wrote of Jesus saying, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells, notice, in bodily form. Uh, Titus 2.13 uh, says that we are looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And so we are, that's the next event that we are waiting for eschatologically. We're waiting for the rapture of the church. So we are awaiting the appearing <clears throat> of the glory. Notice, of our great God 
and Savior. And that is none other than uh, Christ Jesus. So here, notice God and Savior are both applied to Christ Jesus. Again, very straightforward. And again, when you look at the collective evidence, it's just, I mean, it just slams the door. I mean, it just, it just slams the door shut. There's just no, no way around it. The scripture is very clear. Hebrews 1.18, and the writer to the Hebrews said, to, said of Jesus, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So it just amazes me when I run into people that say, Oh, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, and the Bible doesn't teach that he's God. I just think, man, have you read the Bible? Have you, have you ever actually like picked one up and like, like read? Because <laughs> uh, it's just... It's just it's it's everywhere. I mean, you just, you can't you can't escape it. And of course, I'm presenting it here. I'm you know I'm condensing a lot of this. I'm pulling these scriptures together. And by the way, this is not an exhaustive study by by any means. There's other references. Uh, but let's keep moving on here. And and the thing that we're emphasizing here is just his deity. We're talking about because we're trying to understand who is Jesus, who is the Savior. You see, we're trying to understand this. Who is the one? who died on the cross. Who is this person? We're trying to wrap our heads around it. So we're trying to get an understanding of who this person is and to understand what his role is in our salvation. So that's why I'm going into this. Now, as God, Jesus created the universe. In fact, he brought it into being. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, tells us that he was in the beginning with God. <clears throat> and notice, all things came into being... <clears throat> Through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So when you're reading in Genesis 1.1, and it says, Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shemayim et ha-aretz, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's Jesus Christ. In fact, in Colossians 1.16 and 17, Paul says, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him. All things have been created by him and for him. And notice, he is before all things. And then we have a very interesting statement here at the end. And in him, all things hold together. So he is the power that is literally holding the universe together. You know, it's funny, I watched this, um, this interesting um, episode a couple days ago. It was a very fascinating discussion between a, a theistic scientist and an atheistic scientist. And, uh, but this, uh, this scientist was talking about this speculation, what they call dark matter. Uh, they call it that because they've never seen it, and they don't even know if it exists, but they call it that because something has to hold the universe together. And they don't believe in God, so they, so they create this thing called dark matter that they believe is this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this uh, uh, force that literally holds the universe together. Well, we're, we're not guessing at that. That's God. He created it, and he's holding it together. <laughs> uh, but again, they're speculating. Scripture's very clear on these things. So going on here, as God, and, and this is, again, another strong point here, Jesus accepted the worship of men and angels. And to accept worship means that, means that he is God, because only, remember twice in the, uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, where John, where the apostle John, remember he, he bows down and he worships an angel, remember that? And not once, but twice. 
And twice the angel reprimands him. Now, I think John got caught up in the moment. I think he was having a little bit of an emotional fervor there. One can understand when you're caught up in a, in a moment where you're, you're excited, you know, you can be emotionally charged. And John falls down and he worships the angel. He just feels the need to worship. Uh, but he worships the wrong thing, you know, he, rather than God. He, and twice the angel corrects him. The angel says, stop, don't do that, John. And by the way, it goes to show that, uh, that even, a, even a mature believer, so even someone who wrote scripture like, like the Apostle John, still had a sin nature. In fact, I have a strong suspicion that idolatry was his weakness. Uh, that, that that may have been his, and you know, look, everybody has a sin nature. Christians have sin natures. And the sin nature goes in a lot of different directions. Now, some people go in a very moralistic direction with their sin nature, become very religious, like the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. Uh, <clears throat> and then some people go in the direction of, um, of uh, antinomianism or lawlessness or pleasure. You know, they're, they're drawn to alcohol or drugs or, you know, sex or something, you know, pornography or something. Yeah, but sin natures go in different directions. But, you know, some people's sinful proclivity may be alcohol. Some uh, may be power lust. It may be, uh, uh, you know, any one of a number of things. But idolatry is one of the uh, proclivities of the sin nature. And I think I'm strongly suspicious that this was John's area of weakness because of the two accounts of him worshiping the angel in Revelation. And then the very last clause, if you read John's uh, first epistle, the, uh, the first, uh, first John, the last thing he says in that little epistle is he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And that was his parting word, guard yourselves from idols. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm inclined to think that that was John's area of weakness. Uh, but nonetheless, the angel, when he, when he, when he corrected John twice, he, he told him, he said, don't do that. In other words, stop it, John. I'm a fellow servant of yours. In other words, I'm just a creature. We don't worship the creature. And then the angel twice tells John, worship God. Because only God is worthy of worship. Only God deserves worship. But throughout the New Testament, Jesus receives worship. And so notice here in Matthew 2, 2, it speaks of the Magi who came to see the newborn Jesus, said, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Isn't that interesting. And then when they found him, it says, and after coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother, with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Well, they can do that because he's God. Now, on three separate occasions, the disciples worshipped Jesus. In Matthew 14, 33, we're told, Matthew wrote, and he said, and those who were in the boat, that is the disciples, worshipped him. And, uh, and they said, uh, you are certainly God's son. And then in Matthew 28, 9, and Jesus uh, met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then, uh, and then in Matthew 28, 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. So here again, we see these uh, clear examples. And after Jesus healed a lame man, we are told that the lame man worshipped him, that the lame man worshipped him. So again, we have clear examples of Jesus receiving worship, which only God can receive worship, so go figure. Uh, and then it says in Hebrews 1, 6, and of the angels it is written, let all God's angels worship him. 
So he is worshipped by people, he is worshipped by angels. And so it follows that since Jesus is God, that, that Jesus is God, since only God can receive worship. Uh, John Wolverd has a very uh, interesting quote here. He says, in any orthodox statement of the doctrine of the Trinity, the second person is described as possessing all the attributes of the Godhead, being distinguished as the second person in contrast to the first or third persons of the Trinity, and as the eternal Son of God in contrast to the Father or the Holy Spirit. So again, recognizing the second person of the Trinity as God. All right, so now let's move into the doctrine of the hypostatic union. I'm not sure if we'll finish this this evening, but that's all right. We'll, we'll get some headway on here. Now, the Apostle John wrote, again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, at a point in time, and this would be roughly about 2,000 years ago, God the Son added uh, to himself humanity forever uniting his divine nature with a perfect sinless human nature, thus becoming the God-man. In the field of systematic theology, this is called the hypostatic union. Now, uh, here quoting from Lewis Berry Chafer, and this is going to be from volume 1, page 383, he says, Though his deity is eternal, the humanity was gained in time. Therefore, the theanthropic person destined to be such forever began with the Incarnation. And, uh, and that's, that's a concise statement. Now, God the Son did not simply indwell a human, but forever added humanity to himself. And quoting from Paul Inns from the Moody Handbook of Theology, which is one that I recommended last week, I think. It's a good book. I recommend that if you don't have that for your library. That's a, that's a good one to have. It's a good single, single volume uh, to have, but it's a good book. Uh, but here, quoting from Paul Inns, he says, When Christ came, a person came, not just a nature. He took on an additional nature, a human nature. He did not simply dwell in a human person. The result of the union of the two natures is the theanthropic person, the God-man. And so you see how the language here becomes very, very precise. Now, reading through the Gospels, there were times that Jesus operated from his divine nature. And I mentioned this earlier. Remember Jesus, and look at Mark 2, verse 5 here. It says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, this is what Jesus says to the paralytic, he says, Son... Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> well, that's a pretty straightforward statement, isn't it? But there were some scribes who were sitting in the room, and they heard Jesus say that. And this is what they began to reason in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, that's correct. And so that then becomes the issue. Um, now, here's another thing, and this is, this is a, a little nuance here of this particular passage. But the scribes who were sitting in the room, <clears throat> notice they were reasoning in their hearts. What do we call that? We call that private thoughts. This is just what they were thinking within themselves. Well, look at verse 8. Immediately, Jesus aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. Ah, 
Jesus didn't hear them say anything, but from his divine nature, he knew exactly what was going on in their hearts. You see, Jesus knows our thoughts. He knows. And, uh, and so they were thinking this within themselves. But, see, but you see how, 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 in one sense, Mark here is pulling out, in an obvious way, the divine nature of Jesus because of the charge, which Jesus answers. And he says, look, you know, I, basically I can do this thing, okay, which makes me God, okay? But in a subtle way, he's also pointing out that this person who is forgiving sins also has the ability to read minds. <laughs> he knows thoughts because he's omniscient. And so Jesus reasoning. So again, this is part of his divine nature. John 8, 50, uh, John 8 verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Well, clearly here, Jesus is speaking out of his divine nature because his humanity was gained in time. The humanity was gained in time about 2,000 years ago, parthenogenesis, right? And so the God-man, the hypostatic union, occurred 2,000 years ago. But there were times where Jesus refers back to things prior to the incarnation. Again, think of in, uh, in uh, John 17. Father, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Clearly speaking out of his divine nature. Well, you find the same thing here in John 8, 56, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, uh, you are not yet 50 years old. Now, this is one of those verses. See, we don't know exactly how old Jesus was when he died. But this is one of those verses that puts a cap on it, that, that he wasn't over 50. And so th they recognized this, and they said, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? But you notice what they're doing here. They're locked into his humanity. You see, all they're doing is they're looking at the humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, and he's making a pretty bold claim here. And, uh, but he says in verse 58, he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. And when he says truly, truly, it's the, it's the Greek, amen, amen. Uh, we, we bring it into the English as amen. Uh, but here he's making a truthful statement. So he says, amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, that is you who are standing here staring at me in humanity. That's all they see. It's all they hear. But he says, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, what he's giving them is a point of truth. He says, before Abraham was born. Now, Abraham existed roughly, we'll say circa, about 2000 B.C. That's before Christ. Now, A.D. does not mean after death. A.D. actually comes from the Latin phrase, anno domini. And anno domini is Latin. It means the year of our Lord. And, uh, and, it, and it speaks of his, uh, of his continued existence because we are in A.D. 2023. We are in the year of our Lord, uh, 2023. Uh, but he says before Abraham, uh, before Abraham was born. So this goes back more than 2,000 years from the time that Jesus uttered this statement. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, that I am statement appears throughout the Gospel of John about seven times, if I remember correctly. It's been a while since I've taught through John, but I, I remember it occurs a number of times. And uh, Jesus employs it several times. The I am statements throughout the Gospel of John are very, very straightforward. And, of course, uh, you know, it says here that they therefore picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So, you know, he walked out. You know, they were not allowed to carry out their, uh, their little nefarious plan. 
But nonetheless, what we have here is we have Jesus Christ in hypostatic union speaking out of his divine nature. John 10.30, I and the Father are one, are one. And the one here would be one in essence, that they share the same nature. They are both equally divine. And again, the Jews at that time, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. I mean, we said and we sort of quibble about these sort of things, but they didn't. They, they knew exactly what his claim was. When he says, I and the Father are one, it says they picked up stones to stone him. Um, and of course, he comes back, you know, and he says, you know, uh, you know, for what good work? I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And again, the Jews answered, for good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. So very clearly, uh, there were times when he said, like when he said, I and the Father are one. He's talking out of his divine nature. He's talking about his, his deity. But there were times where Jesus spoke from his human nature. Matthew 4, 2, and after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Well, that's his humanity. God doesn't get hungry. <laughs> God doesn't need to eat a meal to be sustained. Uh, God is all-powerful. God doesn't get tired. Jesus gets tired. God doesn't get hungry. Jesus, in his humanity, got hungry. Uh, Luke 8, 22, now, one of those, uh, now on those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. And by the way, this speaks of his being in time and space. So he is, he is, he is finite in his humanity. But notice verse 23, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Well, the humanity of Christ could get tired and needed some rest. God doesn't get tired and God doesn't sleep. Uh, so we have these examples here that clearly point to his humanity. John 19, 28, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. Well, God doesn't get thirsty. <laughs> uh, so again, we have these examples where we see clearly Jesus uh, speaking from his divine nature. And then we have these examples where we see him speaking from his human nature. Now, concerning both natures, citing here again from Paul Enns from his Moody Handbook of Theology, he says, the two natures of Christ are inseparably united without mixture or loss of separate identity. He remains forever the God-man, fully God, fully man, two distinct natures in one person forever. Though Christ sometimes operated in the sphere of his humanity and in other cases in the sphere of his deity, in all cases what he did and what he was could be attributed to his one person. Even though it is evident that there were two natures in Christ, he is never considered a dual personality. In summarizing the hypostatic union, three facts are noted. One, Christ has two distinct natures, humanity and deity. Two, there is no mixture or intermingling of the two natures. Three, although he has two natures, Christ is one person. And so these are things that are set forth, and uh, I like Paul Inns. He's a, he's a very concise uh, theologian. I like his uh, statements. Now let's move on here. So Jesus is the God-man. He is eternal. 
Again, citing the passage um, in, uh, in John 8, 56, 58, you know, before Abraham was born, I am. He is omniscient in his deity. As God, he is omniscient. He knows all things. But as a boy, remember that he grew in, uh, he kept increasing in wisdom. As God, he created the universe, for by him all things were created. But as a man, he was subject to weakness. He could get hungry, he could get thirsty, he could die. Deity can't die, God is eternal, God can't die. But in his humanity, he could die. And you see, and this is why even in Peter, Peter makes the comment that in his, that in his body, he bore our sins. In his humanity, he bore our sins. And these are those little, subtle little distinctions uh, that are helpful for us to understand. Wolverd notes, he says here, and I'm, I'm quite quoting from his book, Jesus Christ, Our Lord, page 107. By the way, if you get a chance to pick up books by Wolvert, he also is a very, very good teacher, and I recommend his books very highly as well. Uh, an outstanding theologian. Um, had the privilege of meeting him uh, back in the mid-90s. I sat in on a series of lectures with him. A very, very gentle man. Has a, had a very um, gentle disposition about him. And, uh, and I love that in a good teacher. I love a teacher that has a good gentle nature. You know, you meet some of these people that walk around with sort of this fist-in-your-face attitude, and I think there's no, no place for that. But, you know, you run into that. Uh, but again, quoting here from Walvert, he says, When the second person of the Godhead became incarnate, there was immediately introduced the seemingly inseparable problem of uniting God with man and combining an infinite and eternal person with one who is finite and temporal. And, and by the way, when you're trying to reconcile these two natures into one person, it, it really becomes something that I think is uh, really impossible for us to understand. One, because there's nothing in, in, in human experience to compare that to. And two, uh, you know, God is infinite, and all of his attributes are infinite. And how do you pour the ocean into a thimble? You can't. It's, it's impossible. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer recognizes this, and I have a quote here from Chafer <clears throat> uh, from Volume 1, page 387 of his Systematic Theology. He says, The reality in which undiminished deity and unfallen humanity united in, in one theanthropic person has no parallel in the universe. He says, It need not be a matter of surprise if from the contemplation of such a being problems arise which human competency cannot solve. <laughs> Nor should it be a matter of wonder that since the Bible presents no systematized Christology, but rather offers a simple narrative with its attending issues, that the momentous challenge to human thought and investigation, which the Christ is, has been the major issue in theological controversy from the beginning to the present time. <laughs> and I laugh when I, when I read this sort of stuff because... Man, I'm telling you, to try to, to know that the Scripture reveals us, and hopefully my going through just even just a handful of Scriptures proves his deity, proves his humanity. And by the way, nobody really has a problem with the humanity of Christ. If really anybody struggles, it's usually with regard to his deity. But the Scripture is just overwhelmingly clear. I, I, don't, I just don't see how any rational person uh, can ignore the weight of evidence. Now listen, we might struggle with how do you understand that? How do you fully reconcile that? I don't know. Uh, and if you're struggling with that, welcome to Christianity. I mean, we, we, you know, people have been wrestling with that for you know, a couple thousand years now. 
And, uh, and this is why trying to think through these things, we can know certain things that the Bible makes very clear, presents in a very straightforward way. But to try to reconcile that, uh, I, think we just, I think we just have to live uh, with certain tensions. And that's true to life as well. Uh, so let me close out with this last paragraph. We'll go just a few minutes over. I promise not to take too long. So as finite humans, we struggle to comprehend the union of God and man. However, it is with certainty... That the, Bible, that the Bible portrays him this way. And this truth is essential to Christianity. Now listen, there are certain essentials of the Christian faith that if you remove one of the essentials of the Christian faith, it, it really ceases to be biblical Christianity. And the subject of Jesus Christ as the God-man is one of those key tenets, one of those key essentials of biblical Christianity. And so this is, this is absolutely important for us to understand. Uh, so again, it is with certainty that, that the Bible portrays him as the God-man, and this truth is essential to Christianity. As God, Jesus is worthy of all worship and praise. And as a perfect sinless man, he went to the cross and died a substitutionary death in our place. And I'm going to camp on that here in, a, in about a week or so, because when we get into, because in my notes, and you can read the notes, you can read ahead, you can see where I'm going, uh, but we'll chase down those scriptures, and we're going to look, we're going to look at our Greek prepositions, who pair, and we're going to look at the Greek preposition anti, and we're going to look at those, we're going to look at the passages, but we're going to understand the fact that he was perfect, he was sinless, it qualified him to go to the cross. You see, this is why this is so important to soteriology. Because it qualified him to go to the cross and die a death in our place and to bear the punishment that rightfully belongs to us. And so as the perfect sinless man, he went to the cross and died a substitutionary death in our place and bore the wrath of God that rightfully belongs to us. Now, I'm referencing a few of these verses in here, and we've already hit some of them, but we're going to hit them again because that's, that's how it is. So, uh, so he died a substitutionary death in our place and bore the wrath of God that rightfully belongs to us so that we might have the gifts of righteousness and eternal life. And so uh, this is our Savior. You see, that's why this study is so important. We're talking about soteriology. We're looking at the subject of salvation. But we have to understand the players. Now, we've already considered God the Father. We've already, we spent a whole night on that. And uh, we chased down a bunch of scriptures that are on that. And so, our, listen, our salvation is, is magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. And to think that God the Father planned our salvation in eternity past, commissioned the Son, and the Son uh, was sent, and He came into the world, and all of the moving parts of this, all that had to be set up, all that went into place on this, is just, it's magnificent. It's just absolutely magnificent. There's just no other way to put it. It just staggers the imagination, really, to just try to wrap your brain around some of this stuff. Uh, but that's all right. Uh, we'll, we'll chase down a bunch of scriptures, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see how much we can learn and unpack uh, in the weeks ahead. So that is uh, going to close out, as far as I can get this evening, on uh, this particular session. Uh, and so next week, we will pick up on our continued study uh, of looking at the role of God the Son in our salvation. All right, well, let's, uh, let's close it out with a word of prayer then, shall we? 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time of fellowship together, for the present freedoms that we enjoy, for this time of study in your word, that we can consider these, uh, these topics, and most importantly, that we can look at what the scripture itself has to say, that the word of God is very clear on these things, and we may categorize these things, we may classify them and give them doctrinal tags and create technical language around it. At the end of the day, it's really what does the Bible say? Because that is where the authority lies. It lies in your revelation, O Lord, because you have spoken, and what you have spoken has been inscripturated, it has been written down and stored for our benefit, and we are so blessed that we can come, that we can open the word, that we can mine it, that we can look into these things. And Father, we thank you for the Spirit who illumines our minds and helps us to understand it, and not just to understand it, but to accept it, to receive it as truth, and to help us understand you in a fuller way, Because in all this, Father, in the end, we want you to be glorified. We want to be edified, but we want you to be glorified. And so we praise you. We thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy, for all that you have done. Father, help us in the weeks and months ahead as we continue to study this most glorious subject of of soteriology and to see the things that you have done in time and space and your great love that you have for us because you sent your Son to die for us. And he made a way where we could not. And Father, we are thankful. Father, we pray that we will be challenged by these things as we go forward. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.